Well, as you drive along, you no doubt encounter the notorious construction zone. Now, believe it or not, someone determined where all of those signs and cones and barrels are as you drive through. And they use something called the Perception Response Time Guidance to place each item where it is exactly. It doesn't feel that way going through there, but I assure you it's been thought through. Just to give you an example, you've experienced this. You're driving along and you approach one of these zones. And there, in what is called OSHA Orange, is a sign reading, Road Work Ahead. And then another sign, right lane closed 1,000 feet. And another sign, right lane closed 500 feet. And another sign, reading right lane closed 250 feet. Then another sign, reading be prepared to stop. There's yet another sign with a man, it's a picture of a man holding a flag, and then you finally encounter a person holding a sign saying stop or slow. And then you proceed along this series of cones or barrels with flashing orange lights. You've entered the zone. And what runs through your mind as you drive through there? This is inconvenient. This is an interruption. Could they do this somewhere else? And what about those guys standing around Are they doing any good? Do you know what else we ask similar questions about? Suffering. Suffering for our faith. It it feels like a detour. Suffering is like a speed bump on our journey through the Christian life. It's one of those things that we, we hope goes away and and we can get back to a normal routine and, and normal life. But the Lord has been placing large OSHA orange signs throughout the book of 1 Peter, letting you and I know that the gospel is about suffering. Now, some don't understand this yet. In fact, some may have other views of the gospel. Some believe the gospel is about prosperity. Yet we know that Jesus never promised health and wealth in this life. Some will view the gospel in terms of social justice. Yet the gospel elevates salvation over society. Some view the gospel as morality. Though we know that many Muslims in Iran live holier lives than Christians in America. Praise God that the gospel is none of these things. It is something far, far greater. The gospel is good news that Jesus suffered and died and rose again for all who believe in him. And you heard that right. Two of those three descriptions were suffer and die. Hardship. And this is so important for you and I this morning. Because what we believe about the gospel will impact what we expect to see in our lives as we believe it. If you believe the gospel is about prosperity... You may try to fit it into some concept of the American dream. If you believe the gospel is about morality, odds are you may be on your way to becoming a Pharisee. 
And if you believe the Gospels about social justice, to quote Richard Niebuhr, you've created a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. But if we take a holy, scriptural view of the Gospel, if we explore what the Bible says about it, and I pray that you do, you may experience prosperity, and you can change morally, and you might bring social change, but most certainly you will suffer. Suffering is part of following Christ. Suffering for your faith in Christ. That's what Peter directs us to today. And he wants you to know that that as you do, you are not to worry and you're not to fear. Peter writes this morning, in fact, to give you hope that you have a future with this Christ. And there's no need to worry or fear as you suffer for him. And that hope will have benefits far greater than the suffering you're experiencing today. In fact, this morning we're going to navigate six benefits of this suffering. We'll begin in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And this is a new section of the letter. We've been working our way through this letter, 1 Peter. It's really the final section of the letter. Of the many times that Peter's addressed suffering in this letter, this is the last time he does so. In fact, you and I are marching toward the end of this series. This morning we conclude chapter 4 of 1 Peter, and we're prepared to begin chapter 5 next time. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So, What is the benefit of suffering? Well, we'll begin with our first point this morning. Suffering reappraises you. Suffering reappraises you. It tests your faith. Now, we are all familiar with that term appraisal. It's this idea of someone coming to your home, someone coming into your home. And they're there to take a really close look, to look at the conditions, to look at the updates, to see if anything has changed or progressed. The sufferings of Christ do this for the believer. They're an appraisal of just where we are in our growth or development. In our passage this morning, Peter calls them a fiery ordeal. 
That's going to be an intense degree of some painful experience we might suffer. Now, the word is used figuratively here, but, but later in Revelation chapter 18, it speaks of the, the, of the town of the city of Babylon in a more literal sense. It undergoes a fiery ordeal. You and I know that, that suffering happens for all kinds of reasons in this life. We'll suffer because of sickness and sin and Satan, and the list goes on. But the Bible presents many additional reasons that we might suffer. The Bible teaches we might suffer for divine discipline, God's way of bringing about repentance if we've sinned. The Bible teaches we may suffer as a heavenly reward, to gain reward. Perhaps God is weaning us off of this world, Maybe it's to check our pride. Maybe it's so we can comfort others experiencing what they will experience. But Peter this morning speaks of suffering for Christ. A suffering that comes for being faithful to Jesus. And we learned here right away that this suffering can come as quite a surprise. Back in verse 4, we learned that the unbeliever was surprised that the believer no longer runs after sin. Now here in verse 12, the believer is surprised at the outcome of running after Christ. One commentator writes of this expression, it's not some kind of paralyzing shock, not that type of surprise, but a continuing attitude of bewilderment, astonishment at what's happening. This surprise could be coming from the source of the suffering, Maybe it's a best friend or a close family member. Maybe it's a respected colleague. We may be surprised at the one causing the suffering. Maybe it's a surprise at the timing of the suffering. Maybe it's an onslaught first thing in the morning. Maybe the phone is going off in the middle of the night. Maybe it's every time I see so-and-so, he attacks my stance on this issue. Maybe it's just the sheer scale of the suffering the language that's used in the attacks, the hostility. Maybe there's a surprise at the level of hostility for a particular belief you're standing on. It may feel like some strange thing were happening to you. Well, believer, when you suffer for Jesus, God is testing you. He's appraising, appraising your faith. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3 says, The refining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. That teaches us something about the God we serve. We know it's very natural for a refining pot and and a furnace to do their work with silver and with gold or doing what accords with their nature. Well, Well, God is doing the same thing. We know God loves and God forgives and God tests. Not that God is trying to learn something new or he's seeking to discover something he does not know. God knows all things. But you need to know that you belong to Christ. And that part of belonging is walking. Walking in the way that Christ walked. This is 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. By this we know that we are in him, in Jesus. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 
That includes suffering. So for the Christian, this fiery ordeal will prove your faith to be permanent. Jesus says those with temporary faith that the affliction of persecution is going to arise because of the word and then those who aren't with him will fall away. And I imagine that Peter would add, I think graciously, that if you do not pass a test and you feel a remorse and a repentance for that, that's a good sign too. Because we're not always going to hit it out of the park. Peter did the exact same thing, did he not? How many times did he fail his test? Three times in a row. Approaching that passage in, in John chapter 18 in our scripture reading. Yet at the same time, who writes the letter we're reading this morning? Peter. God restored him when he failed his test, just as God restores any remorseful and repentant for their sin. So suffering reapprises your faith. Secondly, verse 13, suffering rejoices. It's supposed to be an occasion for joy. Suffering rejoices. Peter says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at also the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. What a contrast to the surprise and the alarm that just naturally swirl about in our minds. What a contrast to these strange feelings we may have from suffering. And Peter says, keep on rejoicing. He writes it in a way that this joy ought to be in proportion or in degree to the suffering. If suffering's a level five and it climbs to a level 10, joy ought to be a level five and climbing to a level 10. Here the rejoicing is an imperative, it's a command. It's a present tense, meaning it's a continual rejoicing and it's a rejoicing for you all. It's the, the second person plural, not just you individually, but you all, the church. It's Tempting to look around and identify someone who's always joy-filled or really good at recovering from hard times and think they must rejoice. No, Peter calls all of us to rejoice in suffering. Already in, in chapter 1 of this letter, we saw this idea of joy hovering in the orbit of suffering, and now here we revisit it again. That joy and suffering go together, odd as that may sound. And notice why we should rejoice in verse 13. Because you share in the sufferings of Christ. That word for share is closely related to a word called fellowship or communion. It involves a, a very close relationship. Over in Philippians, Paul writes about this. He uses the imagery of an account ledger where you have all of your debits in one column and then all of your credits in another column, and Paul's weighing out his life using this image. He says, I count loss, certain things I once thought were gain, circumcision, my ethnicity, I was a Pharisee, a persecutor. I was pristine in keeping the law, but he says, no, my true gain now is knowing Christ. Knowing the power of his resurrection, he continues, and the fellowship, the same word that Peter uses, that close association, the fellowship of his sufferings. We've experienced this in our relationships, 
I mean, you think about having a, a shared experience with another person and how that grows the relationship. I think about two soldiers who are in combat together. They have a, a unique relationship, a, a deeper bond. I think of two hikers who journey and get lost and then found. I mean, there's a, a certain bond that they have together. I just consider the marriage relationship, that the husband and the wife, as they experience years of suffering and years of joy, what a special relationship those two alone have. It's that type of, of illustration that, that undergirds this. And you and I, you and Jesus grow closer in your experiences of suffering. That's, that's what Paul was writing about. That's what Peter's alluding to. You're one who believes in Christ. You know him as one who suffers for Christ. You know him. So as you're suffering for your faith, keep this in mind. Look out for this. There is a deepening of your relationship with Jesus taking place. It's going to grow you closer to him. And I think this is very helpful knowledge in those moments when we're suffering for Christ and we're wondering why. This is one reason why. It's a benefit of suffering. Well, I think our next point plays into this as well. It's verse 14. Here we learn that suffering rewards you. Suffering rewards you. The Holy Spirit helps you when you suffer. In verse 14, Peter says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now here we're learning more about this fiery ordeal in verse 12. In verse 12, we may read about a fiery ordeal and wonder, what is Peter writing about? I think we get some info here. This is what his Christians experienced, his audience, those that he wrote to. And when he wrote this letter, there's some debate about the exact timing of his writing. Right around the time, a man named Nero in Rome burned part of the city and blamed the Christians for it. It's difficult to know if that happened before this letter was written or after it. But when he did that, a state-sponsored persecution followed through much of the Roman Empire, at least for a time. Again, as I said, whether that happened before or after this writing is debated. But there seems to be persecution throughout the Roman Empire, regardless of that event. In other words, the locals didn't need the state telling them to go and persecute Christians. It seems like that came about quite naturally in any local territory of the Roman Empire. It seems like a lot of this persecution for Peter's audience was verbal. Back in chapter 2, verse 11. Believers were slandered as evildoers. In chapter 2, verse 15, foolish men spoke ignorant things. In chapter 3, verse 16, persecutors reviled the Christians' good behavior. In verse, chapter 4, verse 4, they are maligned. And again, in our verse, verse 14, they're reviled again. So we know that it was at least a, a verbal persecution. And I imagine for you and I in our 21st century experience, this would be the type of persecution we would probably experience. You're probably not going to be physically attacked. Your belongings are probably secure. State-sponsored attacks aren't happening. It's not to say that none of these things can't happen or won't ever happen. 
But persecutions in our culture are probably going to be more, more subtle. Maybe it's financial attacks getting at the root of organizations or going after Christians. It, it could be creating legislation that targets morality and, and so on. But for now, Peter wants you to know, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And to be reviled would be to be insulted or falsely accused of something. The goal here is to, to create shame and to put someone down. I mean, the non-Christians are spewing offensive language because the Christian life is offensive to them. A life lived for Jesus with a message that matches his, that's going to be upsetting. Remember, Jesus is God's choice stone. Back in chapter 2, verse 8, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And it's going to bother people when Christians act like Christ. It may make them feel guilty. Maybe the Christian reveals something in them that they don't like. Maybe the Christian is misunderstood, coming across as proud or or self-righteous. We're not trying to do that. We're trying to honor Christ. It bothers people when we talk like Jesus. He used words like hell and judgment. Any discussion about the gospel needs to begin with sin. The gospel begins with sin. So yes, it makes sense that believers would be reviled for Christ. And when you are, consider yourself blessed. Some of your Bible versions have the word happy. That's probably not a very good translation. I don't know many who are happy when they're reviled. God's blessing may not translate into emotions of happiness, It's good to remember that our emotional state never makes God's promises more or less. You should consider yourself blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And we know the Holy Spirit dwells within every believer. The Holy Spirit will never leave you. He'll never neglect you. He'll never fail you. In the moment of suffering, God's spirit is with you. What does this look like? I don't know. Not fully. But I do believe this passage helps to explain some things in the Bible. I mean, take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for example. These three men in the Old Testament know that they will be burned to death if they don't obey the king. And what do they say? Our God is able to deliver us out of your hand. But even if he does not, Let it be known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship your golden image. Where do words like that come from? Where does a courage like that arise? Stephen is before the powerful Jewish council in the book of Acts. His last words as he is stoned by them, quote, do not hold this sin against them. Where does a heart like that come from? John the Baptist is in prison. He boldly denounced the sin in the life of the one man who could put him to death, which, by the way, he did. Where does he find that courage? Where do these people get this kind of grit? Or, if you will, where do they find this moxie? Alistair Begg has made the observation that when he sees someone spiritually strong, 
going through a very difficult time of suffering, he says, I could never do that. And that's true for all of us, isn't it? It's not normal. It's not within us to rejoice or to find some profound courage in those moments. It has to come from somewhere else, and I contend it's this passage. It's the Spirit of God working in us as we're suffering. And in those moments, He will give you what you need. What's interesting is that in the Bible, we're not given all of the details on what He's going to do. And I don't think it's because they're scarce. I think it's because God is able to work through so many of our different sufferings in so many ways we can't count them. He is our reward. When you suffer, you will find reward in the Lord. Well, that brings us to our fourth point. We're making good time. You get nervous when I say six points, don't you? You're doing the math. You're like 10 minutes apiece. No, we're on point number four, verses 15 and 16. Suffering reveres. Suffering reveres. We can glorify God when we suffer. Peter says, make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Look at verse 15. Look at the, look at the few sins that Peter had to head off right away. I mean, you think you have things to worry about with people in your church. No one's trying to kill you or steal your stuff. But we've already learned this concept in Peter, back in chapter 3, verse 9, we're, we're not to return evil for evil or insult for insult. So for Peter's audience, when they suffered for Christ, they weren't to retaliate. Someone in the Christian community is killed, they're not to take matters in their own hands. If some of their things are stolen, they're not to go out and steal again or steal back. And these first two sins in verse 15, they're pretty obvious breaches, right? We understand that murder and theft are wrong. The third list, or the third item in that category is evildoer. It's more broad. It's simply the opposite of, of doing good. But the fourth term is very interesting. A troublesome meddler. Some of your Bibles read busybody or a, a mischief maker. Now, this word in particular appears nowhere else in the Bible. It appears nowhere else in Greek literature outside the Bible at the time. In fact, some people think Peter made it up. And in the original language, it flies solo in the list. In other words, these first three sins are grouped together, and this fourth one is over here all by itself. It's a long word. It's kind of complicated. It's a compound word. But when you break it down in its parts, it comes out as watching over another's affairs or something to that effect. And that's why it carries this idea of a busybody, this busybody meaning to it. But we know what Peter's trying to do here. He's trying to convince us to, to suffer as a Christian. Don't suffer for sinning. And he says that when you do, do not be ashamed. Because when we suffer, we'll feel insulted, ridiculed, slandered. We may feel shame as a result. And Peter says, don't be ashamed of your faith. Don't be embarrassed by it. 
And he used the term Christian here. Notice how he inserted that word in this particular point he's making. This is the third time it appears in the Bible. The other two times it appears in Acts. And there it's, it's used as a term of derision. In other words, unbelievers were referring to Christians this way. It was meant as a cut or as a dig. Roman historian Tacitus reports that the population, they liked to use this term when they spoke of the followers of Jesus. But Peter says, listen, when they call you that name, don't be ashamed to suffer for it. Don't adopt shame, but adopt praise. Instead of feeling ashamed of what they're doing, praise God that you are a Christian and you get to suffer for Jesus. Biblically speaking, what's the shame? A shame is to be accepted by the world. Shame is to blend in and to look so much like the world that we get through all of life without suffering. Luke, or Jesus cautions us in Luke, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's not a call to go out and make enemies. It's a call to just live for Jesus and let the chips fall where they may. The honor here, the honor is to be rejected by the world and praise God for it. Now, we have good reason to praise. It brings us to our fifth point this morning. In verses 17 and 18, suffering refines. Suffering refines. It has a purifying effect on the Christian. In verses 17 and 18, God uses suffering to refine his children. Now, this is an argument in these verses from the lesser to the greater. Verse 18 is an Old Testament verse that Peter borrows from Proverbs. He's going to use that to illustrate his point. But what he's trying to communicate here is that if it's difficult for the Christian, how much harder is it for the non-Christian? Both are going to experience suffering only in different, dramatically different ways. God judges his house. That's where Peter begins. Old Testament passages confirm this. In Ezekiel 9, God has promised to judge Israel. Where did he begin? He began at the temple. In Malachi 3, a future prophet is promised. God says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. That's the the soap of a laundryman. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. He will refine them like gold. Do you see the imagery here? The difference between that passage and us is that when we are purified, it's for our sanctification, not our discipline. God is making us holy when we suffer for our faith. He's preparing us for heaven. And this makes sense in light of who our God is. This makes sense in light of who he's made us to be. We spent some time learning about our identity early in 1 Peter. In chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That is your position before God, suffering for Christ, it brings that about. It's going to take that, it's going to carry that out. 
It makes it real in our lives. It's how God works it out. So God uses the suffering of his children in the name of his son to purify them for heaven. Now this judgment of God, it's momentary, it's not eternal. That's important for the believer to remember. You and I have limited time. We have limited opportunities to suffer for Jesus Christ. We might say we have a few decades at the most. And then, then we will be with God. And we will never again be persecuted for our faith. There'll be no one there to persecute us for our faith. This purifying that God does as we suffer for our faith in this life, that will no longer be present in the life to come. There's no need for it. I'm not saying that you and I need to leave here and go out and provoke some suffering, no. But we do need to be ready, if the Lord should so will it, that we suffer for Jesus Christ and be willing to walk in it, remembering the message, a message like today, the benefits that come from it. Secondly, this judgment of God is, is not because God hates you, but because God hates sin. And he hates sin in the lives of those that he loves Words like judge and judgment, these can conjure up certain feelings in us. Feelings of of anxiety or, or dread or doom. But don't view God that way, not if you believe in Christ. The Bible says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That God is a judge, it's true, he's purifying our lives, but he's doing it because he loves us, not because he's mad at us. Which means, thirdly, the judgment of God is to be desired because we love Christ. Again, Christian is not a derogatory name for you and I. We should be proud to say it. It means, after all, little Christ, which is what we're striving to be. You know, our heart beats to be like Jesus, and if your experience is anything like mine, you understand that that this isn't going to happen by your own doing. Like, I don't wake up in the morning with new creative ways to be more like Jesus. No, I need God to step into my life and to help me be like him. To come in and move me along, and he does that through this idea of suffering for our faith. God knows how to transform us, and he can be trusted when he does. So suffering so far, it reappraises, it rejoices, it rewards It reveres, it refines, and lastly, suffering reassures. You are in the will of God. Suffering reassures. Because who will never suffer for Jesus Christ? The unbeliever. Those who do not believe upon the gospel of God and those who do not do God's will. In verse 19, we learn, finally, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. It is God's will that that Christians suffer for the name of Jesus. And we have really good evidence in the Bible of God's sovereignty over those times in our lives. People of the faith have gone before us. God has maintained control. You think of men like Job or Dave and Jeremiah. You think of Paul or Jesus himself suffered for the name of God. Back in chapter 2, verse 23, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What's the context there? Reviling 
and suffering. You and I do the same. We entrust our souls to the Lord. The word in our verse is a bit of a different word than it was used of Jesus. Our word is more of a banking term. It has to do with going in and handing over what is valuable. And you can imagine maybe going into a bank and doing that. Maybe it's a safe deposit box. You're going in there and giving something that's important, turning it over. You're giving them a trust. That's what we're doing with our lives in the hands of God when we suffer. The good news is that we have a reliable broker. God is the faithful creator. The only time he's called this in the New Testament, that God is a creator, it alludes to his sovereign power, that he's in control. And when suffering seems to be spinning out of control, we know that God is not. He's faithful. He's trustworthy or dependable. He's never going to clock out. God has no voicemail. He's ever-present. He's dependable. He's faithful. When you suffer as a Christian, he is your rock. Today's message reminds you and I about suffering. And not only did Christ suffer for Christians... But Christians suffer for Christ. Suffering is a two-way street. We've been given by Peter a, a present hope for a future promise. So in closing, let's try to think very practically about this. What does this look like in our lives? What might this look like for us? How do we rise to the call of this passage? Is it an exciting call? Makes, makes us a little nervous, perhaps. I think we first just need to begin by imagining, imagining what this may be. I think we need to first imagine God. Imagine trusting God with all of who you are. Living out a faith that is proactive, not a passive faith, but a proactive faith. Imagine trusting God with the outcomes of every exercise of a proactive faith. Here, we're not making any deals with God. We're not having any expectations for how things might turn out if we speak out or if we stand firm. Here, we are having no sense of entitlement as we enter into the week. We're simply living all of our lives like Jesus is Lord. Maybe we're going to suffer for him. Maybe we're not. We're just going to trust him. Imagine trusting him. Now, imagine suffering. What a real-life scenario might look like in your life. It could be different for all of us. Now, you're not going to battle lines in the Colosseum, but you might take heat for Jesus this week. Maybe you've been praying for a certain friend for years. You've been praying that God would bring someone along to share the gospel with him. You share the gospel with him. And in turn, he gives you heat for it. You suffer. Imagine receiving ridicule for a biblical belief in marriage in the workplace. Imagine being blocked or even removed from social media because you love to post Christ-exalting messages. Imagine resentment from a beloved family member. You refuse to use a certain pronoun and you suffer for it. Imagine what suffering might look like in your life if you stepped out 
in a proactive faith. Imagine, finally, seeing Jesus. One day, every believer in this room will. One day, every non-believer will as well, but that's another story. You and I don't want to say to him, Jesus, I made it. I made it through this life. I chose my words so carefully. I walked through my weeks so gently. I was so careful not to offend. I have made it into heaven. We don't want to say that. We want to say, Jesus, you are the reason I suffered. But I am not ashamed because I knew whom I have believed. And I, have conv- I was convinced that you would guard what I've entrusted to you for this day. That's what we want to say to Jesus. So imagine, finally, your choice. Because after all, at the end of it, suffering is a choice. And when we choose to suffer for Christ, I believe we'll find the benefits of suffering to outweigh the benefits of avoiding it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the sufferings of Jesus. Thank you for the confidence that we have. There is no suffering we will experience that he has not experienced, that he cannot identify with. It is not an easy message, Lord. Honestly, I'm not sure we want to suffer. It's not something that we seek out or look forward to. But I pray for us that in the moment, if you do call us to suffer for the name of Jesus, I pray that we would. And I pray that we would do it seeing your hand in this, even helping us to rejoice and understand there is reward in what we're doing. I pray you would give every precious soul in this room what they need in the moment that they need it. Oh, Lord, thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.